0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Bible says to be diligent to present yourself or
1: prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Hey, we're so pleased you can join us on this Tuesday for The Bible Line And if you happen to be joining us for the very first time, the Bible line is an opportunity for you to uh, present questions on maybe a passage of scripture that you've been studying, that you're trying to understand or apply, or maybe a given situation uh, uh, where you need biblical counsel. And so if we can be of help, We will do our best to respond to the questions and needs that you present to us today. There are several ways in which to contact us. You just heard Rick mention uh, the local 843 exchange, and that's 525 1859, 525-1859, 1859, 525-1859, the 843 Exchange here in South Carolina. And we also have our toll free number, the 877 Exchange, is the call letters WAGP980. You're also free to email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is uh, the Bible line TBL, the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. dot net. And when you call, as always, we give preference to live callers. But you're we're welcome. We will welcome your dictated question if you'd like to present it in that fashion. And there's someone who'll take it down and we'll go from there. All right, we we have uh, more questions than usually we have time to answer. But we will answer as many of them as we can, and so let's go
0: ahead and we'll get started. All right, very good. Alberto from Savannah writes, How do I respond when the pastor's wife tells you God's word says not to argue when you question the pastor's teaching or any guest speaker or church member in the congregation? If you can't question, doesn't the Apostle Paul command to expose false teaching or to test the spirits? If a church puts that policy in place, then I can preach all kinds of heresies and prepare a last-minute sermon or offer Bible study that's false teaching. In essence, the pastor is saying, nobody can question me, and he justifies it by saying the Word of God says not to argue. What is your response to this question? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, the, the Scripture is clear that a
1: pastor is to be sound in doctrine. And so when God gives the qualifications for an elder in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, he speaks of soundness of doctrine. And so if a man of God is sound in his doctrine, then he's going to understand that there is a responsibility to weed out false teaching from the church. And so he would not be, uh, you know, put down or challenged by that request. He would actually appreciate it because He recognizes that God doesn't want error taught in the church. You know, uh, the person who presented this question from Savannah, my sense is, because they've given us a lot of questions like this, is that you're just in the wrong church, because um, you've brought questions in the past, which I appreciate. They're all excellent questions, but what those questions reflect is that you're in a church that's filled with theological error. And you're right, you know, indeed, if, if, if you can't, you know, ask your pastor a question, well, how did you come to this conclusion, and you think that it is going against, indeed, the, the direct teaching of Scripture, then that's not a good thing. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, "...in pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following." And so he he's speaking, you know, about in the last days, uh, people would fall away from the faith. And the faith here is articular, meaning uh, the body of truth that we call the Bible. And so he says that we're to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith. So contextually, he's, he's dealing with the fact that there's going to come a time in human history... Uh, And he interestingly uses the term latter times, not even last days, but latter times. It is true, last days in a few Old Testament passages can refer to the end of the age, right before Messiah comes on the earth. But in the New Testament, it's clear that the last days, so to speak, began on the day of Pentecost. But the phrase latter times in both the Old and the New Testament reflects that final segment of human history right before the Lord Jesus comes. For instance, in the latter times, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both write that God would gather Israel from the four corners of the earth and bring them back into the land. He's been doing that. So that tells you that you're in the final stages of human history before the Messiah comes. We are seeing prophecy for the second coming, which is a prophecy Driven event being fulfilled in our life, whereas the rapture is instantaneous. It could happen at any moment, it's imminent. With that said, God warns that at the end of the age, there would be false teachers and false prophets. And if your pastor is sound in doctrine, he's going to know that and he would appreciate if someone asked him a question, you know, like, well, Pastor, you made this statement, and I read this over here. Uh, tell me, help me, um, how, how did you come to that conclusion in light of this verse? Be humble enough to say, am I misunderstanding this passage? Please help me. And I think God can honor that spirit. And if your pastor says, well, don't question me and da-da-da, then, you know, he obviously doesn't understand much of uh, what's taught in the pastoral epistles, which we would call typically First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus. And he's really not qualified. But I'm just, again, sensing from this, um, this friend here. I've never met Alberto from Savannah, but he's asked questions over the last year. that So I recognize the name that reflect that I think he's in an unhealthy church and there's a time sometimes to leave a church and to find a healthier fellowship that you can be a part of where you're not just spinning your wheels and you're not embarrassed to bring a non-Christian to or a new believer that maybe you've introduced to the savior
0: 8435251859 if you have a question on today's bible line Katie from Hilton Head Island writes what does Samuel mean in 1 Samuel 28:19 when he says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. I know he's referring to Saul and his sons impending death, but is he saying that Saul will be in heaven? I happen to be finishing up my study in 1 Samuel as we finished your Growing Up in Christ series in church this week. Since Saul had been walking in unrepentant sin and disobedience to God until that point, I was wondering if this was a case of a Christian who had not grown up in faith still redeemed, but whose works would be burned up with the chaff? Well, it's, it's an excellent question, and there's not a direct New
1: Testament parallel between Saul and, say, what you would call a Christian. In the Growing Up in Christ series, if someone's listening, that's our basic discipleship series. We've done three out of 21 handouts that will be presented, God willing, if the Lord will tarry, and he'll give the strength over the next year. Uh, But we've spent 13 weeks on those three handouts, and uh, I would encourage anyone listening, especially if you're a new Christian, you're trying to get a a solid biblical basis uh, for growth in your life, maybe to listen to this basic discipleship series. Really, the question that you're asking is somewhat of a twofold question. You're asking is, is he a believer? Did, Did Saul go to heaven, and people come down in one of two sides. Some say, well, no, he didn't. Uh, Look at his lifestyle. There was a litany of abuses throughout his life. Um, He was indeed, you know, someone who was characterized by a lot of jealousy and and hatred and and murder. He, on one occasion, slaughtered 85 of God's priests. On another occasion, he was uh, himself plagued by an evil spirit. On another occasion, uh, the one that is at hand, he, uh, did something that God said, you don't do, you don't visit a medium. And of course, uh, the medium was shocked because unlike, um, her communication with the demonic world or, or sometimes it's just a sham and nothing happens. Uh, Samuel actually came up and of course, um, you know, th- this man had a track record with a lot of problems, but it's interesting to think about what he said because I think you can give an argument, too, that Saul was saved and you will meet him in heaven. Number one, we know that he was chosen by God. Uh, you can read about his choosing in First Samuel 15. God, God chose Saul. Um, Saul didn't choose himself. God chose Saul to be the king over Israel. In addition, not only did God choose Saul... Uh, to be king. God used Saul to prophesy. If you remember on one occasion, um, he was filled with the Spirit in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, in fact, let me just turn there because I think it's an interesting passage and God doesn't typically do this with just anyone. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart. That's interesting. Then he would parallel that with the new birth in our day. And all those signs came about on that day when they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, what has happened uh, to the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets. So, again, many would point out to that, 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 you know, again, God chose him to lead Israel to be king. Uh, for, that would be 1 Samuel 9. God chose him to prophesy among the prophets where he's filled with the Spirit of God in a unique way. So when you look at his life, he's chosen by God. He doesn't choose himself. He is um, appointed by God to prophesy in order to defeat the Philistines. And yet at the same time, a lot of his life, most of his life, He seemed to be dominated by the flesh. But I think what's really telling is what Samuel says here. Read it carefully. Let me read it again. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, the next day, and you can read about it in 1 Samuel 31 of his death and what happens the next day. And some of you have been with me to this very place where it took place, where he lost his life, and, and they ultimately uh, nailed him on a wall, he and his sons. It says, you and your sons will be with me. So where's Samuel? Samuel is in Sheol. Now understand, there's two compartments to Sheol. So some would say, well, he's in unrighteous Sheol, and that is translated, by the way, the, the Hebrew word Sheol, when translated in the Septuagint, is translated Hades. And that's very telling when we come to the New Testament. Jesus speaks of Hades. So John the Apostle in Revelation 20 speaks about how death in Hades was cast into the lake of fire. So right now an unbeliever is an unrighteous Sheol or Hades. But again, the pronoun here is significant. It says, therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Well, where's Samuel? samuel's in righteous hades it's also called in the new testament abraham's bosom it's also called paradasis or paradise uh, now paradise continued in that now god also calls uh, the place where a believer goes today paradise but god emptied out righteous Sheol at the resurrection and brought samuel and all the old testament believers into new covenant paradise the place that jesus has prepared for his people. With that said, he said he would be with me. And he says, you and your sons. So wherever Samuel is, that's where Saul is. And don't miss the fact in your sons. Now, one of his sons, we know a whole lot about, and his name was Jonathan. And Jonathan was a righteous man. He loved the Lord. And so wherever Saul is, Jonathan is, and Samuel is, so I think you can make a very strong case to say that you will meet Saul in heaven. But here's the problem is we take our New Testament theology and we read some of these Old Testament passages and we say, well, he wouldn't meet the qualifications today to be a believer. Well, he wouldn't meet the qualifications today. If someone had this as a way of life, we'd say, well, that person was not truly regenerate. They were not a new person in Christ Jesus. But remember, these are old covenant believers, and there are things under the old covenant that God allowed that he allowed, and you could have as a part of your life because you weren't born again. And so, for instance, Ezekiel the prophet, when he writes of the coming of the Messiah and the new covenant that he will institute, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone in your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. So that's the promise of the new covenant, a new heart where God takes a heart of stone. So if we were to base, say, let's just take um, David. King David had seven wives, and we don't know how many concubines. He, um, He was a polygamist, and yet you will meet David in heaven. God calls him a man after his own heart. But under New Covenant standards, we'd say he was lost. Or how about Solomon? the wisest man who ever lived, he had 700 wives and a ton of concubines. Will we meet him in heaven? Clearly we will. The Bible indicates we will. So we can take a different kind of sin and project that on Saul and say, well, he was lost, but he was an old covenant believer. So I think when you put the whole thing together, I think you can build an argument that you will see Saul in heaven. I wouldn't spill blood over it or break fellowship over it, but I think uh, when you consider the bigger picture,
0: I think you can come to that conclusion. 843 If you have a question on the Bible line today, and Deedee Dee from Indiana is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning Dr. Brogi. It's Katie from Indiana and I'm the gal that was on your Israel trip yes, last Katie, year. And I yes Katie, yes. Thank you for that opportunity.
1: Oh, well, I was so pleased that you I went.
2: Have is recently on the Bible line you referenced if we had a change in political parties that possibly you would not be able to counsel homosexuals at the church. And I was thinking of going one step farther and dovetailing into that. If that requirement was put into place that you could not counsel a homosexual lifestyle, then would we be required to marry homosexuals? Would you elaborate on that, or we just lose our 501c3, and I'll hang up.
1: Yeah, these these are great questions. Uh, one of the uh, issues at hand, and there are a ton of issues in this next election, election that if – and again, I, I think you can't simply go by personality. You have to go by platform, and you have to go by principles upon which people are you know, presenting themselves. And the Democratic platform, you know, more brazen than ever, says you can kill a baby right up until the day before it's born. And, of course, we had one governor who said after the baby's born, if the doctor and the mother wants to slaughter the live baby, they can do that. So there's a lot of huge, huge moral implications that are up for grabs. And, of course, there's an act called the Equality Act, and I would encourage people— um, to go online and maybe read about the Equality Act, because it's a it's a bill that would have gigantic ramifications on um, Christians and just people in general. And one of the things that it says that you cannot do is you cannot uh, offer what's called reparation uh, counseling, where uh, people uh, are encouraged to change their actions. And so if someone is introduced to Jesus Christ in faith and you're beginning to help that new believer to leave the homosexual, transgender, whatever it is that he's into lifestyle, uh, you know, and to change and to begin uh asking God to bring healing and to bring about a heterosexual orientation it's called reparative um, counseling, Uh, they would say that that is um, against the law. Now, what would be the ramifications? This would be easily, of course, expressed in uh, secular realms, whether it's in the military or in public schools, the government school system, and and so on. Uh, But it would have huge ramifications for Christians. Now, obviously, we have First Amendment rights that protect religious freedom, and assuming that the Constitution is still in play, and one of the major issues is court packing. If we have, indeed, a Democratic Senate and a House and President where you can change the number of justices to 13, or I think Roosevelt wanted to do 15, and that were to happen, you can put all liberals, and by liberals I mean just stark, unbelieving, godless people, which is reflective of the Democratic platform, it's a godless party. So let's not, you know, let's not mince words here. It's a godless party, and their policies are godless. And if you've not read the 91-page, you know, platform and you vote Democratic, then, you know, you're really voting in ignorance. And, And I'm not saying that, you know, all the Republicans are righteous people. But you have to look at principle more than personality. I don't know whether Donald J. Trump, our president, is born again. I don't know that. He could be. Some think he's a baby Christian, but I don't know. But I do know that he wants to protect human life that some of the things that he's done for African American people has been huge and great and positive. So people who say he's a racist when on twenty three occasions he's denounced, you know, people like the Klan and David Duke and, and others, you know, I don't I don't believe that. Uh, he's been pro-Israel, and on and on and on. We could go with his policies. All I can look at is policies. But I think the ramifications, Katie, would be that churches would lose their five hundred one c three status. But if the court is packed, where you have all these liberals, and you can basically, you know, you, you're gonna, you're gonna, what's gonna happen is that that third balancing. Um, you know, form of government within our three branches is is going to be lost. And it's going to be controlled for a long, long time by godless people who are going to uh, put their godless principles into the court system, where they're going to be, in essence, perf- performed and made a part of law. So these are very, very serious issues and huge ramifications on you know, the Constitution itself. And let's face it, you know, the socialists in our nation, they don't like the Constitution of the United States. Listen, the liberals who are running our colleges and universities don't like it. In South Carolina, every institution of higher learning is mandated by law to teach the Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Independence, and the Federalist Papers, which serve somewhat as a commentary on the other two, in terms of how the founders understood the Constitution. With that said, there's only four schools now that are doing it, and that's largely due to pressure that has been put upon them. But you've got major universities like the University of South Carolina, Clemson, and they have mocked and laughed at it. They said, well, we honor the law and that we pass out the Constitution on Constitution Day's. That's like saying, well, the way we uh, teach chemistry is we, we pass out, you know, the periodic table once a year. And that's not what the law says. The law has mandated six hours of teaching, but they can have a course on Lady Gaga. They can have a course on tailgating and all kinds of wicked and profane things that are taught that most people are blind to. And they have no idea what these students are actually being indoctrinated to. But here are people who don't love our country. And look, I think at the best right now, the very best we can do, assuming we have some people who are elected into office and, you know, I think of a guy like Senator Graham and he's up for grabs and, you know, the guy who's running against him for Senate, he's godless. He's a godless pagan. Let's not mince word. It has nothing to do with the fact that he's black. He's a godless pagan. Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, whom one of my sons spent a year working for, he is a godly man who loves Christ and the things of Christ. So this is not a racial thing. We're we're talking about principles and lifestyle and things that people are teaching and espousing. But I think what is going to happen is if the, if the least we can do is maybe we can stay off some of these things for another four years. But unless there is some kind of a revival in America, the American way of life is we know it will be lost. Because it only functions on a Judeo-Christian ethic. It only functions on a Judeo-Christian ethic. And if you survey students 18 to 25, the way they think about life is so anti-God and godless. It, it, these are the leaders. These are the people who are going to make be making the decisions 15, 20 years from now. And if that's what we have, America will be fundamentally a different place in which to live. So these are important days. And God's in his throne. Look if, you know, after the election... We have a President Biden, God's still on his throne. Um, he's not going to be, ooh, call an emergency meeting of the Trinity. We're in trouble here. You know, it's, he's, He knows what he's about. But that doesn't dismiss my responsibility as a Christian to lay in the dust any kind of um, certain views that I've held in, in, in not to vote on principle. And that's part of being salt and light. Good question, Katie. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled. Uh, we had her and her husband and Dave with us in, in mm. Israel, and uh, it was a pleasure getting to know them.
0: Well, the second part of her question was, Will, if you continue to counsel and if you're then expected to perform marriages for homosexuals, will the church, uh, and you refuse to do that, will the church lose its 501c3 status? 501C3 I suspect status? so. Because, but worse yeah. than that. You could actually be arrested. It possibly. It could come to that. People say, well that will never happen.
1: But see, think about this for a moment. See, we've got all these so called churches and now even so called evangelicals who are cowtowing to this world view. We we have two churches in our town that do gay marriages. Yeah, they do gay marriages. You know, what kind of a church is that? It's not a church, it's a it's apostate. It's a false message. And now we've got, you know, People who have taken this intermediate step, a Tim Keller, who's supposedly a, a, a Christian apologist, who said that same-sex attraction is just fine as long as you don't act on it. You know, that, that's a wicked point of view. No, that needs to be brought under the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit if you're born again. And if someone says, well, I'm born again, but I'm just attracted to people of the same sex, and it's okay for me to embrace these feelings... That's someone who has not been regenerated by the Spirit. So what I'm saying is, is the biblical worldview is going to become a minority unless there's a revival, and the implications and ramifications initially might be, yeah, okay, you know, uh, you can't um, have your nonprofit status, but you know, we've got a pastor in Sweden who's in jail because he refuses to marry gay people. You say that could never happen in America. Anything could happen in America if we reject God and the ramifications are gigantic.
0: All right. Glenn from St. Helena Island wants to know if you have ever heard of or if you know anything about 119 Ministries. 119 Ministries. I've never
1: heard of it before, so um, I really can't evaluate it. I just brought it up here online about us and their teachings, and I would have to read their doctrinal statement, but I, I don't know anything about them. So for me to respond intelligently, I would have to read their website, their doctrinal statement, and uh, to give you a, a good answer. If you want to call back next week, I'll try to uh, to do that between now and the next time.
0: Okay, very good. Uh, Natalie from Charlotte, North Carolina writes, hi dr brogi i've been married for nearly 40 years and while my husband and i are both believers i have a personal relationship with jesus and my husband chooses to only spend time with the lord on sundays he finds that when i do bible study it's excessive and is very resentful of the fact i attend a bible study we attended a presbyterian church for all of our marriage but i've been attending church with my daughter at her church it's a southern baptist convention church and made the decision to get baptized. I was baptized as a baby since I was Presbyterian as an adult and felt I had led to join the Baptist church. My husband said he didn't care where he went to church, however, he refuses to be baptized as an adult and thus will never join. Should I return to the Presbyterian church where he's still a member but never attends or is it okay to be a member of the church where I know the word of God has preached the gospel? Uh, and even though my husband refuses to join. Thank you for your insight.
1: Well, it's a good question. So here is the overriding, overarching principle. And the scripture says that we're not to forsake the assembling of the brethren. It also teaches that we're to, t- we're to separate from those who teach false doctrine. So sometimes people have been in liberal churches, and by liberal I'm not using it in a political context, so the two are often wed Uh, but I'm using it in a theological context. But liberal, they don't affirm the essentials of the Christian faith that would count someone to be a Christian. So if a church doesn't have the gospel, they could have a wrong view on baptism. And obviously, you know, baptism and credobaptism, infant versus post-conversion, they both can't be right. Someone's right, someone's wrong. But that's not necessarily a test of whether or not someone's a Christian. There are many fine... Presbyterian brethren who are born again who practice a covenantal view towards infant baptism. I think they're wrong, um, but that doesn't mean that they're not Christians. But if your husband is going to a church that doesn't have the plan of salvation, then he's in a bad church. And for you to go there, then you will then be disobeying God and forsaking the assembling together of the brethren. So, this is what I would suggest, a couple of things. You want to be respectful of your husband because believer or not, and it's typically the reason this is an issue in a man's heart, if he wants to go to some liberal Presbyterian church, and there are conservative Bible-believing Presbyterians in our nation, but if he wants to go to some liberal apostate Presbyterian Church. We, we've got the PCUSA in the United States who are ordaining men who don't even believe in the deity of Christ. They have officially come out in favor of homosexual marriage. That's an apostate denomination. Those are not believers, men who are leading that. I'm not saying they're unborn-again people within some of their churches, but if they had grown a little bit, they would have left a long time ago. Um, but typically, if a man is in that kind of church, it just means that he's unregenerate. And so to try to get your husband to be baptized before he's born again, it's, it's not going to happen typically, and it shouldn't happen. You wouldn't want him to join the church and get baptized unless he's regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But if um, he's going to a liberal church and you say, well, honey, here's some of the concerns I have. Um, the denomination that, you know, you attend every week teaches this. here's what the Bible says. Your pastor says this, here's what the Bible says. And if he says, well, I'm going with my pastor and I'm going with my denomination, then you know he's unregenerate. So if it's an issue of, well, I don't you know, want to go to a Baptist church, and, but I would go to a Bible-believing Presbyterian church, now you're on a different page. And it might be worth, indeed, you know, if your husband would do that, that's probably where you should go. But what you cannot do is forsake the assembling together of the brethren. So if your husband's going to a church that does not have the gospel, You cannot be a part of that, one, because God tells you to separate from those who teach false doctrine. There are many passages that affirm that basic truth, and for you to go, someone might say, well, Natalie, she's a fine Christian lady, and she goes to that church, and my, I'm really impressed with her walk with Christ. Maybe I should, you know, go to the church that she does. Listen, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. That would be a violation of Romans sixteen seventeen. And not only that, you will be giving an endorsement to that local church by your participation in that. You can read First Timothy 6 or Titus 3 or Second Thessalonians 3 or Revelation 2. These are all passages that teach biblical separation. And again, I'm not talking about secondary issues. I'm talking about issues that make a person a Christian. And so any lady who may be in this situation this morning that's listening to me, if your husband is in a church that does not have the gospel, then it's an issue we must obey God rather than men. Now, if your husband is just ignorant and he is born again, then respectfully um, write him, maybe where it's not an argument, or sit down with him if you can have a cordial conversation And say, look, I need to know why you're a part of this church. Here's what they say. Here's their doctrinal statement right here. Here's what the Bible says here. How would you reconcile those two things? And so those would be the kinds of things that I would do. But it sounds to me, Natalie, like your husband is lost and um, baptism is you know, something that will happen after he's born again. His whole attitude will change about it, and that's really what you need to do. You need to pray for his conversion. You might want to listen to my message on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and it basically deals with what do you do if you're married to an unbelieving husband, and I think that would provide a lot of um, um, theological background, and some uh, some help to, to help you to live in this situation.
0: 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And you know, Pastor, there's a, a place in South Carolina called Switzerland, but I think our next listener is actually calling from the country of Switzerland or actually writing. Steve from Switzerland says, Hi, Pastor Brogy, I've been listening to you for about 18 years now, ever since I got saved. I love your passion to teach and understand Scripture correctly, not as we may have seen taught or as we would prefer to understand and believe. Your teachings in Romans on election and predestination have been especially enlightening to me. I was always thoroughly convinced of the traditional understanding of election, but as you expounded on the Greek and Hebrew meanings of many words used in these passages, you brought a totally new understanding to this doctrine. I will say that I still struggle a bit with the overall understanding. I'm going to listen again, though, as it is quite meaty.
1: Well, I appreciate that encouragement. And one of the things that you'll want to do, Steve, is reconcile in your thinking the biblical use of the word prognosco uh, that is translated in our English Bibles typically uh, foreknowledge. What is biblical foreknowledge? And what's fascinating is that when you study this word, foreknowledge whether it's in noun or in verb form it means to know beforehand and so for instance i just turned to second peter chapter three and the apostle peter is coming to the conclusion of his letter and he says you therefore beloved knowing this beforehand in other words it's prior knowledge and here he uses the verb progenosco and it's a uh, knowledge that was known before. Paul uses the same verb in Acts chapter 26. And uh, there are three occasions in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul shares his testimony. And they're very enlightening because if you're trying to uh, give a personal testimony and you want to know how to write one, uh, study the three times that Paul gives his testimony. One, it shouldn't be so long that, you know, it takes an hour. To, you, you, you should be able to do it in just a minute or two. Uh, but Paul says, so then all Jews know my manner. Hey, by the way, he's giving a defense of his life before King Agrippa. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation in at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. And again, it's the word prognosco, foreknowledge, again, in verb form here. And so foreknowledge is what God knows beforehand. And so the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. Uh, That's a biblical doctrine that God chose us. He elected us before the foundation of the world. It's not a matter of, is election true? The question is, how does God elect? That's the point of Rob. And I believe that God elects on foreknowledge, that God knows in advance how people will respond to the work of the Spirit of God in their life. And I'm not Arminian in that I believe that man has a spark left in him where he can respond on his own. People are dead in their trespasses and sins, so God has to take the initiative. Uh, There is no one who seeks God, no, not one. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And dead men can't respond. Uh, They need life, and so the Spirit of God initiates. He begins to uh, work on a person's life, and he knows the one who is said to convict not a few people but the world of sin judgment, um, he is going to um, work in that heart so a person can accordingly respond, and uh, God knows in advance those who would respond, and we call those the elect and the non-elect are those who will not respond. So it's not an issue of free will. We are free moral agents, but neither is it an issue that we can take credit for any of our salvation because it's a work of God from beginning to end. By the way, while we were sitting here, and I was listening to your question, I went to that website, 119 Ministries, and um You know, they're quoting from pseudopocryphal books. Um, uh, Grafe is a word for writing pseudo is false. So the pseudopocrypha are those books that are not viewed by Christians as being part of the canon of Scripture. Um, There were writings between the Old and New Testaments, and then there were writings that were done after the Bible was complete so for instance they're quoting from the book of first Enoch uh, chapter 71 verse 14 <laughs> there is no such inspired book called first Enoch there's a book by that name but it's not a book that uh, God inspired and he included in the canon of Scripture so right off this ministry without me even beginning to read much of their doctrinal statement is in gross error because when you have a canon of Scripture that is beyond the 66 books of Holy
0: Scripture, you got a huge problem right out of the gate. All right, very good. Deborah from Tingsboro, Massachusetts, that's just a little bit northwest of Boston, says, I have a question about uh, severe mental illness. I have a dear friend who suffers greatly. I stand by this person in Christ. I give God's Word and love on a regular basis. This person accepted Jesus in their 20s, but as time has gone by, his mind has become more troubled. I've heard pastors preach very lightly and very generically on mental illness. This person has a doctor and is on medication, but he's still very tormented. I can't help but equate it with a small child who's starving for food in, let's say, a third-world country, and someone's telling them about Jesus, but they're dying of starvation and can't hear because their life-saving needs are not met. Can you give me insight on how to help more? I feel he can't hear me when I tell him God's word because his pain is so great. Thank you so much. Hearing you speak God's true word is very sobering to me and leads me to know how we should all revere God and accept his son, his power to forgive, his great love for us before it's too late.
1: It's a great question. And uh, let me just say to this uh, caller My guess is is that she has been listening for some time out of a Worcester, Massachusetts station. But just in the last three weeks, uh, we are on a new station in Boston. It's W-I-L-D 1090 AM, and it's in conjunction with the Worcester station. They simul broadcast, and so you'll be able to hear us really crisp now in the great city of Boston. So we're excited about the people that we can Uh, reach through that outlet. Um, Let me just talk about mental illness for just a second. Uh, There are sometimes um, Christian people who say, well, there is no such thing. And that's the extreme. No, mental illness can be a real problem that people have. Now, I'm not saying that all mental illness needs to be treated 100 percent of the time with medication, but sometimes that's a starting place. And if I take a rubber band and I stretch it and I stretch it and I stretch it and it eventually breaks, uh, we can tie that rubber band and a knot back in it, but it's never going to be quite be the same. And so sometimes people, as believers, more often as unbelievers, uh, go through a time where they have a breakdown. And because of that, they might never be the same. And with that said, um, they need medication. Now I think things are obviously overprescribed today. Uh, I mean, science shows that. The statistics show it. Uh, people are on meds who would never be given meds you know, 15, 20 years ago for the same problem. A lot of antidepressants make people more depressed. so you got to be really careful, and some people, though they just want a pill. as long as their doctor gives them a pill, they're happy. And if they went to their doctor and they didn't get a pill, whatever the problem is, they feel like they've been ripped off. I just spent all this money and I didn't even get a prescription out of the deal. Um, But there are some people like, like if you came to my office and you have an ulcer, now the root cause of most ulcers are worry. And so my goal is to help you to get past that worry. But it would be right if you had visited a medical doctor and he discerned that you have an ulcer to give you medication. But the medication all by itself will only treat the symptom. It will not treat the root cause. And so to deal with the root cause, namely, Worry becomes critical or whatever else can drive an ulcer, and there's a number of issues. And so if you're born again to be brought under the sanctifying spirit's power where you're not controlled by worry or whatever the issue it is, it becomes critical to your really being truly healed. I remember uh, a young Marine who had a, a mental breakdown in the Marine Corps. He was a Marine Corps pilot. I mean, the guy totally flipped out. Uh, He was dismissed from the Marine Corps, was medically discharged, uh, came to Beaufort. I had the opportunity to introduce him to Christ. Now, he was under the supervision of the Marine Corps before they dismissed him. There was a Department of Psychiatry here at the local Naval Hospital. In fact, the psychiatrist was a member of our church and a born-again Christian, and he prescribes meds for him, and And um, he said, can I speak to your pastor without violating any kind of, you know, uh, doctor, uh, patient uh, confidentiality? He said, no, I want you to. And, of course, he told me, he said, Pastor Carl, if he was not on the meds that he was on, he'd be in a straitjacket. But what became so marvelous is that he found Christ as his Savior, and I watched him grow. And as he grew the amount of meds that he needed were greatly and significantly reduced uh, because God was bringing about healing. As far as I know, he's, he's been gone from the area for 20 years. I don't know that he's ever been 100% off of the meds. But sometimes things are broke and you need meds. Uh, so you just need to be careful. And I will say, too, some things that are classified as mental illness is not mental illness at all. But it's a demonic oppression. But what I would suggest very practically, um, this person from uh, Massachusetts that has written, okay. is maybe try to introduce your loved one to some godly Christian music. Music is a powerful medium either for evil or for good. Saul, when he would bring in King David and David would play on that harp those beautiful kinds of psalms that he's famous for writing— Uh, The the, the demonic spirits could not stand it, and they left. And the same is true that there are certain types of music that actually attract and invite evil into a person's heart. So help them with some good music, assuming they're not listening to some of this heavy metal and other things that are really – they're being produced so much of this stuff by people who are deep into the occult. All right. I hope that helps. Let's go to the next one.
0: Okay, uh, just had a caller that dictated their question. Um, they want to know if a person uh, dies without Christ, and they um, are, are they immediately sent into a place of torment and and horror. Um, the reason she asked is that someone recently said no. They kind of float around a while before they 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 get there. It's not like uh, limbo because there's no coming back of it, but. I don't know where she's talking about because there there is a final lake of fire. So, right, right. Uh, I think that's what she's uh, driving yeah. at.
1: No, it's a good question. Now, when a person dies today, you know, for the believer, absent from the body, present with the Lord, that's a new covenant truth. Now that um, new covenant paradise. So while there was a place called Sheol in the Old Testament that had two compartments, unrighteous Sheol and righteous Sheol, going back to the first or second question we're asked today. About where Saul went. Uh, we know where Samuel was, no one can argue that. Um, there's righteous Sheol, and that was emptied out after Christ and time and space uh, paid for our sin. And most would put it at the ascension, all of those uh, old covenant believers were brought up into heaven at that point, their spirits. But uh, old covenant Sheol, also called Hades, continues. So for the believer today, absent from the body, present with the Lord, for the unbeliever, one second after they die, they meet the living God in a place called Hades, or they they are judged by the living God, I should say. And Jesus actually tells a parable on that uh, in Luke chapter 16 of a rich man who died and went to Hades and a poor man named Lazarus who died and went to Abraham's bosom. And the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in in Hades. So he's buried, he's dead, he's buried. But the person inside of that human body is in Hades. So the corollary is true, absent from the body is to be present in Hades for the lost man. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So Hades is a place of agony. It's not the final resting place, but it is a place of agony. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life uh, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So it's a permanent place when a person dies. He can't, you know, get converted in hell and then switch over from Hades, unrighteous Hades to Abraham's bosom or today to heaven well, then he said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let let them hear them. Let them listen to the scriptures. Let them hear the Tanakh. That was one way you summarize the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said, that's not actually true. And that's what people think today. If someone just did a miracle, I'd believe. No, 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 no. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, the word of God, which is alive, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And there was a man by the name of Lazarus a short time later, uh, within a few um, short weeks before Jesus actually died himself, that was raised from the dead, and all it did was spur people on to want to murder Jesus all the more. Now, the Revelation tells us in Revelation chapter 20 that Hades continues, but in a different place. Let me read it to you. Then I saw the great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. This is the resurrection of all the lost people of all time. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, and so on. And and then it says in verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades, in one sense, continues in a place called the lake of fire, where at this point, uh, the devil, uh, the false prophet, and the Antichrist are all there at that point. And it's the final resting place of all the lost people. So there is no like a uh, limbo state or anything like that. They go to an immediate place of uh, awareness. They're conscious, immediate place of eternal separation, immediate place of punishment, but the final judgment does not take place until the great white throne judgment after the Messiah rules, and there's a reason for that. And you might want to go to and listen to my message in my series on Revelation. Listen to the message Revelation twenty eleven to fifteen. I preached that one paragraph right there. It's a full sermon. And I kind of walk through in more depth the very question you asked this morning. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. We've got about uh, two and a half minutes left. I think you can handle this one. Chris from Hiram, Georgia says, uh, what are some practical ways we can bless Israel today? Well, number one, I'd say right that
1: comes to mind is pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's what the scripture says. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In praying for the peace of Jerusalem, you're praying for the Messiah to return. And that will lead to the conversion of the Jews. And again, the fervent righteous prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Uh, You should certainly affirm Israel that they are indeed God's people, that the church is not the new Israel. So you can bless Israel by correcting the bad theology that is now permeating more and more evangelical churches, that the church has replaced Israel, that there's no future for Israel, And remind people of what God said that during the time of the tribulation, Israel is going to come to faith. You know, I I hear from time to time, I should just say this parenthetically people will say, well, the Jews are going to be converted when they see Jesus and they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. No, they will be converted before that, but when Jesus comes and they look at him, they will indeed mourn. Uh, They will see him physically, the one they actually rejected as a nation. And so there's coming a time, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's seven years in length. Not not every Jew will believe. Some will follow any Christ. But as a whole, all Israel will be saved. Largely, when Jesus comes back, most of the unbelieving Jews, not all of them, because there's a separation that takes place even amongst those Jews that were believers and those who were not, who survived the tribulation. But most of Israel will believe. So, one, uh, just educate your fellow Christians about what God says about Israel, and I have sermons on that, especially as you listen through the book of Revelation, and if that's something uh, you would like to hear, download on your phone the Search the Scriptures app, and there's about 75 hours of teaching verse by verse by verse on the Revelation. Well, we're out of time. A lot of questions we didn't get to, but I'm grateful for the questions we were able to address today. If you have questions, you can go to uh, Search the Scriptures. There's a drop-down menu, and you can uh, submit them. I have my computer with me today, and uh, while we're here, two new questions came in, Rick. So it's never-ending, but we'll answer as many as we can. Thanks for being with us. God bless you as you walk with Christ.